Yeah, I was gonna say this is like a lesbian utopia, but like I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Welcome to Fawn Effects, the podcast about weird and wonderful facts about animals and the interesting interactions that people have with them. Um, so if you listen to last week's, we talked about... Oh, I'm Grace. <laughs> I'm Matt. <laughs> oh, sorry. If you I don't was... know that by now, it's hopeless. I'm optimistic that we get more and more listeners every time so i appreciate the optimism last week we talked or i talked about unisexual animals and i got really excited and talked about it for a long time so today is part two where i was just gonna talk about one more unisexual vertebrate and just a reminder, maybe we'll talk about, I'll talk about this some other time, but you can get animals that create clones. It's just not their only way of reproducing, but the animals that we've been talking about, this is the only way that they reproduce. Hmm. So today I was going to talk about whiptail lizards. Hmm. You find them in New Mexico and... The American South, I guess, what would that be? Southwest? Oh, gosh. Okay. I mean, if it's New Mexico, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think they're in other states besides New Mexico, but apparently whiptail lizards are their state lizard. Um, mm. So there are some whiptail lizards that have both males and females, but the one I was going to talk about today, there's only females. And unlike the Amazon mollies and the salamanders that I talked about last time, these lizards don't need males at all. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, but it's still interesting because they still have, they call it um, pseudocopulation. Okay. So they still, like go through the motions of one lizard X, I'll put this in quotes, female-like, and one lizard acts male-like, and even though they're both females. So they need this in order to produce the right hormones to start ovulation and produce eggs. Hmm. I think it's super cool because... Some of it's controlled by hormones, um, and they couldn't figure out, like, when they first saw this, they're like, okay, you see this in the lab, but these animals aren't doing this in the wild. But when one lizard, um, when she's uh, about to ovulate, what happens is another lizard that is has already ovulated and has um, gravid eggs inside her or... Um, that just later eggs will actually like act like a male would in species that have both males and females and 
I guess they bite each other during um, copulation. So Mm -hmm. she'll bite her and then do this pseudo copulation where they mount each other and act like males, except they don't have um, the male genitalia. Mm -hmm. And this is caused by, I guess, in the, what was it? There's a big boost in progesterone, which in humans is the pregnancy hormone. It keeps you from giving birth early. There's a huge boost in progesterone, and that increases the probability of these lizards to um, display the male-like behavior. But really, it depends on social settings, too. So if there's a female who's about ready to ovulate, then the lizards are more, like, the lizards that aren't about to ovulate are more likely to act like a male in the situation. Hmm. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. It's pretty cool, but it also, I didn't realize lizard sex could be so violent, because one of the reasons they proved that these lizards were doing this in the wild is there's um bite marks that scar. Wow. So they're like, see, see, we caught all these female lizards and they all have bite marks on them. I don't know if um the bite marks like there's still like some aggression going on. Right. Uh, but it's more like a I don't know, like a left-handed darkness situation. I don't know if you've read that. Oh, I have. Yeah. So it kind of reminds me like that, except they're actually not switching the male to female, but they take on the appropriate role for the social situation. Yeah. What else was I going to say? Oh, but they are evolved from um, sexual, yeah, uh, sexual animals, um, so they're, like, their mating displays, and their mating displays, oh, sorry, kitty. Their mating displays are, like, of the asexual or unisexual animals is the same as the sexual animals. And then, um, in the lab, they've created hybrids between, in the lab, I mean, like, they put animals from different species together, mm. and then they created these hybrids that could undergo parthenogenesis or like create viable eggs without having sex so after they found this they're like oh gosh this happens in the lab how often does this happen in nature so you could be getting female lines that can create more females without males all the time in nature but it'd be really hard to figure out which ones they are because they all kind of look the same. Huh. Or they look similar, (laughs) at least. So, yeah, it's just very strange. The lines of what a species is is very blurry. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's what I have about those guys. Wow. I might talk about more about what this... The guy, um, David Cruz, he did a lot of work on these guys, and he did some other really cool experiments in reproduction and sexuality in lizards. It was written in the 80s, the paper I read, so the, some of the language is a little different from what we'd use, because the paper I read was The Problem of Gender, 
I was talking about gender and lizards, which I don't know if we use quite those words today, but he does make the argument that male and female behavior does not rely just on hormones or on Mm. sex chromosomes. Don't we know it? Yeah, which, I mean, it was, yeah, we we know that today, but he was doing that work in lizards. Mm. So that's really interesting. And I still, he was still working today, but hmm. I think it was brand new stuff in the 80s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. Well, so there's nothing else you want to say about that? No. No, that's okay. it. Okay. I find that super interesting, the concept of you can't tell if there's a line of these lizards who are reproducing without males versus not like is the implication of that that this could be happening all the time or um no i think that they have like they know there's hybrids out there but really i think that these they know that these lines that don't need sex have evolved but they created one in the lab so I mean, they didn't, they put lizards in a cage and then they had sex and then they created this female that only makes females and she doesn't need males. Mm -hmm. Um, And her daughters can do that as well. Um, So it, it just means that they see these hybrids and yeah, like actually, well, yeah, I guess you're right. Um, Yeah, they could be um, unisexual and they didn't know. So it can just arise a lot more than what they thought. That's pretty wild. I didn't look too much into that. I just thought it was interesting, like, because there's a lot of argument, like, how could this come about? And it doesn't need a lot. <laughs> just needs two lizards that are from different species that are okay with mating with each other. And I don't think it happens all the time. Like, I don't think right. each pairing from different species will result in this. Right. But some kind of combo works out. (laughs) Yeah, it's just really interesting. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. What I want to talk about today... Okay, so you've seen Harry Potter. Yes. Not all of them. So if you quiz me on every movie... I'm sorry, what? (laughs) What? You haven't seen all of them? No, I haven't seen all of them. Grace, what? Don't sound disappointed. Some of movies I, are not good. Whoa. Okay. There's a lot that we are going to have to discuss at some point. I'm confused. Have you read the books, though? Yes. You oh, know, okay. I'm then a, then you I care know, less. Yeah, then I'm I care less. I'm a snob enough that I'll be like, <laughs> the books are better. I don't need to watch all the movies. <laughs> Okay, that's fine. That's fine. I just <laughs> I just felt like as a fellow nerd, if you had not consumed all of the Harry Potter uh universe, at least, you know, the books, those books. I have not books. consumed all the Harry Potter universe, but I know. I don't know why I didn't mean it like that cuz it's not Don't say universe. I I know. I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm going to stay in the Harry Potter solar system. So <laughs> oh man, that was funny. <laughs> Hogwarts or bust? <laughs> All right. 
So what did anyway, you... I'm so sorry. Okay, so you know how in the Prisoner of Azkaban and Harry has divination for the first time with Professor Trelawney and she's like, ah, I see the grim in your cup. Oh, yeah. So recently for my birthday, which was like two months ago, but whatever, uh, my friend gave me a fortune telling teacup where it has like some symbols and a lot of them are like kind of planet-based, but other things, where you can decipher some things based on where the tea leaves land, or you can use this little book that it comes with that says what different patterns mean different things. Mm -hmm. I, of course, immediately flipped through to see if the Grimm was in there. Yes. It was not. Oh. But... The Grimm is a real thing that comes from something, and so I'm going to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. And for those who are not familiar with Harry Potter, because I know... Oh, that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the Grimm, wasn't it this do- large dog? Black that, dog, yeah. Yeah, that was an omen of death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes. not good. <laughs> not good to get in your teacup. Not in Harry Potter. Solar system, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So the church grim is actually more of a guardian spirit in English, British, and Scandinavian folklore. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, they kind of oversee the welfare of a particular Christian church and protect the churchyard from those who would, you know, commit sacrilege against it or whatever. It does often appear as a black dog, but it can take the form of other animals. So, okay. This comes from this idea that when a new churchyard was opened, it was believed that the first person buried there had to guard it against the devil. And so, in order to prevent a human soul from having to perform this duty, they would bury a black dog in the north part of the churchyard as a substitute. Oh my gosh. I, okay this is yeah this is really interesting but mm-hmm. yeah thank you i was yeah hmm. okay keep going <laughs> so yeah the english church grim usually took the form of a large black dog and guarded the churchyard again from like thieves vandals witches and the devil himself so by the 19th century uh people believed that it had once been the custom to bury a dog alive under the cornerstone of a church what? as a foundation sacrifice so that its ghost might serve as a guardian. What? People believed that or they actually did it? People believed that that had happened. It is kind of hard to discern oh, whether okay. or not it actually happened. The burying alive. They definitely were burying dogs. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unclear if they were burying them alive. I really, really hope not. So then, of course... These, like, spectral black dogs, the Grimm's, did have sometimes an ominous association. So in Yorkshire tradition in England, if you see the Grimm and the church bell tolled at midnight, then that means there's a death that's going to take place. And during funerals, presiding clergymen may see the Grimm looking out from the church tower and determine 
based on something about the way the dog looks or is acting, whether the soul of the person who just died is going to heaven or to hell. Oh, okay. Yes. And uh, the Grimm inhabits the churchyard day and night and is also associated with dark, stormy weather just to be nice and creepy. Hmm. There's also a Scandinavian version of the church Grimm called, I'm going to slaughter this, the Swedish name is Kirkegrim, and the Danish is like Kirkegrim, and again is seen as a protective being of an animal buried alive in the church foundation. This version usually has the Grimm living in the church tower or another place that's kind of hidden, um, but wanders the ground at night and is tasked with protecting the church. And it's also said that the first founders of Christian churches would bury a lamb under the altar, and when a person enters the church when services are not being held, they may see the lamb. And if it appears in the graveyard, especially to a grave digger, then it's implying that a child is going to die. Oh. <laughs> in some tellings, the lamb that is seen by people at the church would only have three legs, and it's kind of seen as representing Christ, obviously, the Lamb of God. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Are you yeah, I'm glad you spelled that out for me, because I was like, oh, <laughs> lamb. That's okay. fine. I also think, like... I'm also, it doesn't, I didn't see this, but I'm also kind of thinking the three-legged thing is like, you know, the Holy Trinity, so that's why uh, there's three legs, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Can't, okay. I yeah, can't promise. <laughs> um, and then there's some other animals that were used to create the church grim in Scandinavia, I'm pretty sure only, including boars, pigs, horses. They would also have a grave sow which was like a sow that they did bury alive. And if they saw it in the streets, it would be regarded as an omen of death. The last like little interesting fact about that is that there's tales of the Danish church grims and their battles with something called the Strandvarsler, which are the spirits of those who die at sea, wash up on the shore and remain unburied. And so the Strandvarsler would try to enter the churchyard, and then the Danish churchgrims would fight them to keep them out. And that just sounds like a very cool, creepy, epic battle. Yeah, I'm just surprised, like, do you remember in social studies in the eighth grade, you'd hear about Mayan sacrifices and stuff? Yes. And then it turns out that in Europe, they were burying animals in churchyards and under the foundation. <laughs> <laughs> and we, I mean, it's different than human sacrifice. I, I admit that. Yes. And I don't know how much. It's weird, though, that people talk about burying animals alive when it's, I feel like usually they say those kinds of things about other religions, not Christianity. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like, to make other religions seem, I don't know, what's the right word? Less quote-unquote civilized. Yes, exactly. So it's really interesting that this was thought to have happened in Christian churches. 
Um, yeah, and not that long ago either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, wait, what time period did you say? I think 18th century and before, maybe. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Could be. I could That's... be kind of wrong, but oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> a lot of inherent racism in how we talk about other cultures versus Western European ones. Yeah. Oh, that was interesting. About Thank you. The Church Grim. Yeah. Hmm. I was trying to think of a pun, but I can't. So. <laughs> How grim is the grim? I don't know. Puts a new meaning on pet cemetery. <laughs> um. Hmm. Well, yeah, I don't think they do that. As far as I know, churches don't do that around here. So <laughs> I think that'd be very unpopular. Yeah. I don't think it's a thing that happens anymore. And I don't think it no. was a thing that ever made its way to America. I think it stopped before that. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of really, um, as I was looking into this, there's a lot of different kinds of dogs in folklore who are, I guess, otherworldly in some aspects, or, like, they have spiritual connotations. Mm. Yeah, I know there's, like, an Irish one. Oh, I don't know if I can pronounce it. But they're hounds from the other, the other world, and they go hunting with fairies and stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's what I thought you were going to lead into, but you didn't, so... And I don't know. I don't know enough <laughs> about them to say anything. What are they called? Oh, I found it. Oh, it's <laughs> the Kin and oh gosh, How, it's Welsh. <laughs> Kin and in. Well, that's cool. I've never heard of these. Yeah, so I wonder if that's. They were associated with migrating geese. Supposedly because their honking in the night is reminiscent of barking dogs. Yeah, and then the part that I thought was cool. Their growling is loudest when they're at a distance, and as they draw near, it grows softer and softer. <laughs> so Their coming is seen as a death portent. Yeah, and then I think you could spend hours on Wikipedia just looking up mythical dogs, folklore dogs. No, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, gonna close this up. <laughs> oh. Before we go into the never-ending abyss. All right, well, thank you for listening to yet another episode of Fauna Facts Podcast. If you would like to see visuals, you can go to our Instagram at Fonifax Podcast. If you don't use Instagram, you can find us on our blogger, fonifaxpodcast.blogspot.com. And please rate, review, subscribe. If you want to email us any fun animal uh, articles or whatever, that is fonifaxpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much. See you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.